How will we fly again? That is the question as the UAE and other countries in the Middle East grapple with loosening COVID-19 related travel restrictions. Airlines have been in survival mode these past few months. Now they must take to the skies again. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With me is Kelsey Warner, Feature Editor. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Mustafa. Good to be with you as always. Looking forward to talking aviation today. And with us to talk about aviation airlines, the future of air travel, the immediate future of air travel, is Mohamed El-Bakri, who's the Vice President Africa and Middle East at the International Air Transport Association. Welcome, Mohamed. Hi, Mustafa. How are you? Thank you for having me. Good for you to be with us. Um, IATA is monitoring which countries are opening up. Um, you've got an interesting interactive map, for example, uh, which you can see if you visit the national.ae. Um, is it fair to say that given where, this, where we are in the pandemic, that we've kind of passed a watershed moment in terms of where air travel is, that we're beginning to um, try to, to get it back online compared to where we were, where we were trying to restrict it? I, I certainly hope so. I mean, uh, looking at the numbers um, and looking at what's happening in terms of countries uh, starting to relax their um, uh, travel bans and restrictions, we certainly hope that we've seen the worst of the uh, of this of this epidemic and the impact and and, and air travel. Uh, if you look at the at the passenger demands in April of this year, it really reached the the lowest uh, level at ninety four percent decrease compared to two thousand nineteen. Uh, so we hope that as we passed April and we went into May and we started seeing a bit of a bit of uptake. Uh, mostly from domestic flights uh, in countries where they started uh, relaxing their rules again. And hopefully that will continue, this trend will continue into opening up more to uh, regional traffic, um, bilateral agreements between countries, and then towards the end of the year, or perhaps uh, first quarter 2021, uh, we'll see a, a gradual return to international long-haul flights. Um, but for the Middle East, for instance, um, in April, we had, we had never seen anything like that. A 97% um, it, uh, uh, a decrease in demand for traffic compared to last year. So hopefully we've seen the worst and we're beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel, as they say. Wow. Ayata last week came out and said that, you know, quarantine measures put in place for arriving passengers were almost as bad as just outright travel bans. And so what is IATA recommending to airlines and governments in terms of what passengers can expect when they travel as an alternative to the 14-day quarantine on arrival? Well, you know, we do we do understand the we do understand the concerns and we do understand why governments um, would be so cautious because, listen, the world has, you know, has never seen anything like this and they've been fighting uh, this virus and they've been trying to contain its, uh, uh, its spread uh, for the last few months. Now, as they start to really balance between rebuilding uh, their economies, um, 
and opening up and you know removing these restrictions it's it's a sovereign decision decision you know i mean it's a decision based on risk mitigation and really looking and assessing the risks and seeing what would work now uh, from what we have seen and although we do respect that decision however what we are recommending to those countries who are ready to open up and reconnect to the rest of the world is to have a balanced approach uh, they cannot open up and um, put in place requirements for quarantine because, first of all, passenger surveys, surveys that we've done about uh, a week or 10 days ago, showed us that 80% of people uh, will not travel if they're, you know, if there are uh, requirements for quarantines at the arriving station or the arriving cities. Um, and then the economic analysis we've shown for all the countries who opened up their borders but maintained quarantines requirements actually shows that the same they lost the same number of passengers as the countries who closed their borders. So we see no value in um, countries really mandating quarantines. There are other alternatives uh, that have that have been shown, you know, I mean, and, and guidelines and recommendations that came out from IKU, working with the rest of the international organizations to assure governments that arriving passengers will not pose any threat of respreading the coronavirus. I mean, there's a real tension here between the public health crisis, the fallout on economic activity, and, and aviation and airlines seem to be right in, in, in the vortex of that of what needs to be done to kind of deal with both situations. And I remember, you know, early in the pandemic, um, you know, we heard from Emirates, uh, you know, the Dubai-based airline, that um, they would try and conserve as many jobs as possible, that they would try and prepare for the time when things pick up. And so they didn't want to be in a situation where they didn't have the ability or the capacity uh, to meet that um rising demand. And of course, things have changed a lot since then. And even Emirates have had to take probably harder decisions than they perhaps wanted to at the beginning. But now I'm beginning to see other airlines. I mean, every day, the headlines about the number of jobs being cut by airlines around the world, thousands of jobs are going to go. And to me, it, it seems like it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't have the ability to meet a rebound, then there won't be a rebound. I mean, I know it's a simplistic observation, but it'd be good to hear your take on it, Mohammed. Well, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, and this is why early on, uh, when the when the crisis really started, um, we worked really hard with just about everybody in the world in terms of you know, all the regulators and all the governments, and we continued advocating uh, for the first immediate priority back then, which was really. As countries started to close up uh, and put travel bans and, and close their airports and airspaces, we needed to ensure that the safety and security for the remaining flights, which were mainly cargo, um, humanitarian flights and repatriation flights, that airspace was uh, stayed open and stayed safe and secure. So that was the first priority because if you remember, the the world reacted in a disorderly fashion uh, to this crisis, and every country took its own decision uh, and just you know I mean uh, uh, closed up uh, without any coordination, without any 
uh, prior information, which really made uh, air travel uh, uh, um, put put air travel at risk. Uh, the second priority for us was to really show governments that uh, without their intervention and without the financial aid and help needed by airlines, airlines will not survive this crisis. Uh, fleets were grounded all over the world. 90 plus percent of all the fleets worldwide were parked. These are expensive machines, you know, I mean, created, purchased, financed, and meant to stay in the air to connect the wall. All of a sudden, they were all parked down. Uh, uh, expensive assets and commitments from airlines towards their suppliers, towards their manufacturers, towards airports, towards service providers, and most importantly, towards their own employees. So we knew that revenues, you know, were not coming. Revenues were cut drastically, uh, while the commitments of airlines towards, you know, I mean, their employees and their suppliers and governments and so on continued on. We needed governments really to step up uh, and 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 come forward and help. Um, however, unfortunately, you know, I mean. In, in the region of Africa and the Middle East, we didn't see what we saw elsewhere in the world, uh, where about 123 billions were actually uh, brought forward by governments, helping airlines to keep them alive um, so they could participate in, in rebuilding economies and reconnecting the world. In Africa and the Middle East, we only had what we saw as announcement by governments, a total of uh, 800 million, which is really nothing compared to number of airlines uh, we have, you know, I mean, in the region and the size of airlines we have in the region. So what do you think the outcome is of that sort of lack of lifeline? What do you see happening to these airlines? Our research, unfortunately, in I mean, shows, and this is why we continue to talk to governments and, and provide them with statistics and research and information. Our research shows that Without, if we, if if the current situation continues, you know, the borders are closed, you know, airlines cannot fly, uh, and government aids will not come through, um, we will see more than fifty percent of the airline uh, companies uh, will go into insolvency. Uh, this is this is this is just you know, I mean, very obvious because you know these airlines have already. Uh, taking more than $550 billion of debts in this year. They've lost more than $341 billion in revenues. So there is no more room for them really, you know, I mean, to maneuver. And this is why, unfortunately, we've seen during the last uh, few weeks, more and more airlines are announcing um, reduction, redundancies, um, and, and actually, you know, even announcing that they will not uh, return to operation um, a huge number of their fleets, which means job cuts, which means reduction in operation, which will impact other service providers, which will impact, you know, I mean, all the huge investments in the region that have been made at airports and airport hubs, which will impact lives. Um, we've got about a, a million two hundred jobs. Uh, in the Middle East at risk of being lost by the end of this month if we don't see governments really either, you know, I mean, bringing in uh, uh, the liquidity injections 
providing bank guarantees and guarantees for loans, um, uh, reducing charges and you know service charges and fees and taxes, or uh, relaxing the restrictive measures they've put on air, air travel, adapting internationally accepted standards issued by ICAO, and gradually opening up and allowing these airlines, you know, I mean, uh, to get out of this mess that they're in. And prior to this, what attracted so many expats to the GCC, honestly, was the affordability of air travel and the ability to get back home from no matter where you live. And so what are you seeing in terms of affordability for air travel in the midterm out of this? Airlines are doing uh, everything that they could do uh, really to maintain the uh, low fares and the low prices for air travel. Uh, because historically, we've seen that the the prices and the cost of air travel has come down over uh, a number of years, uh, and it became a really affordable, the safest means of transportation for everybody around the world. Uh, and airlines intend uh, to continue to do so because we need to attract passengers and we need to convince them both of these, their safety and security, and of course uh, uh, the affordability of air travel. However. We really need to keep in mind that a lot of the measures that are being imposed by governments and airlines, uh, not, the, not, the, not the measures that have been published by ICAO, but measures that are um, you know, uh, regulated by individual governments could have uh, huge financial impacts on airlines. For instance, if, if governments um, uh, dictates that uh, an empty seat uh, should be left, you know, I mean, on board the aircraft, that will reduce the load factor to almost 60%. Now, no airlines can make any money or even meet its operating costs by flying almost half the aircraft empty. Uh, there are countries who are regulating for instance, in Europe, IASA just you know came out with a regulation requesting um, foreign operators who fly into Europe, long haul flights for more than for six hours or more, to thoroughly disinfect their flights before they fly in, and then disinfect them again at the arriving station in Europe. That's a huge cost in terms of uh, uh, the disinfection cost, plus that will increase the turnaround time um, for that aircraft. So, you know, as you know, the, the, the longer the turnaround time, the more losses the airlines will incur by having that aircraft on the ground, paying in parkings and paying service providers. So we really need to look for a balanced approach. We do understand the criticality of the situation. We do understand the fear and the phobia, but what we're asking all governments is whatever measures they want to impose on air travel, it really needs to be based on um, medically proven and uh, science proven facts rather than just uh, hypotheses uh, or assumptions. There are 1.2 million jobs in the Middle East, aviation related jobs on the line, given the current situation. The organizations like the International Civil Aviation Organization is making recommendations based on what is realistic for airlines to operate. However, there is a tension between what the, the ICAO, ICAO says and then what certain governments are instructing airlines to do. And within that tension is 
a cost implication. And, and this, again, is putting pressure on the margins, the ability for these airlines to operate, and hence these jobs are at risk. You know, how many airlines have to go under? How many jobs have to be lost before you guys can come to an equilibrium? I hope that countries and regulators, individual countries, although although keep in mind that when ICAO published its uh, takeoff guidelines, that was that was endorsed by the ICAO's council, which represented, you know, I mean, all the countries around the world. So in effect, countries have accepted those guidelines. Now, we know that and we've been working with individual countries around the world you know, I mean, to implement those guidelines and we are providing our own content in terms of how do we operationalize those guidelines into actualities on the ground at the airport, you know, on the aircraft and the arriving stations and so on. But we do understand that certain countries have specific requirements and we're talking to them and we're trying to mediate between them and the airlines that uh, what's the requirement for does it really add any value in terms of uh, uh, health protection does it really make sense does it have any scientific background or not Uh, and if not then why do we have it why do we ask for this Um, and we're trying to mediate the discussion it's difficult it's a difficult issue it's not a it's not an easy issue and we do understand the concerns of government quite honestly because they've they've put a lot of efforts uh, many that went into fighting this epidemic to contain it and they cannot take risks but at the same time if they don't uh, come to an agreement then they will lose the connectivity to the world they will lose the airlines that have cost, you know, I mean, hundreds of billions over years to be built up. They will lose, you know, I mean, the uh, the confidence of people in air travel, and their own GDPs will start, you know, I mean, struggling. And when you look into why countries started opening up, and they started opening up, you know, shopping centers, public parks, restaurants, uh, workplaces, you know, they reached a point where they said. They couldn't. Their economies could not afford this lockdown situation. And they will very soon reach the point where they will understand that their own countries cannot afford to be disconnected from the rest of the world. Not only because of the losses of jobs uh, and the losses incurred and all the supply chain related to air travel, but also to their own needs as, as nations. Nations cannot cannot live, cannot grow, you know, cannot advance, you know, I mean, by, by living in a, in a sort of, uh, in a disconnected situation. So hopefully they will, they will come. We continue to talk to them. We continue to advocate, provide data, provide information, mediate, you know, I mean, trying to uh, convince who's, who's really, you know, I mean, uh, in the control right now, which is the departments of public health, quite honestly. Civil aviation's authorities, they do understand what needs to be done. Airlines, they do understand what needs to be done. Uh, international organizations related to air travel understand what needs to be done. It is the, um, the departments of public health and the ministries of health uh, that we really need to uh, sort of get to um, uh, a balanced approach with them so this industry will not die away. Uh, and, and if this industry dies away in our particular region here in the Middle East, the losses, the losses, you know, I mean, will be beyond, beyond anybody's ability to recoup later on. Sort of off of that, as reopenings begin to happen and we return 
to some level of travel. You know, we've got these air corridors, travel bubbles, you know, point A to point B, there needs to be some reciprocity among governments over who's allowed to travel where. What is your stance or opinion on these travel bubbles that we're starting to see? Well, you know, um, it, it's, a, it's a way of restarting uh, bilateral agreements, you know, I mean, between states um, who trust each other's um, implemented measures, safety measures in terms of health safety measures. So if country A and country B really, you know, I mean, uh, are adapting the same measures that are recommended by all the international organizations, um, and they really, you know, I mean, commit to implement those uh, uh, completely and fully, then they would create this safe corridor between them. And hopefully, you know, I mean, we'll have more and more of these bilateral agreements that will create uh, a larger networks or bubbles that will become bubbles, you know, uh, for uh, countries that would feel really safe that the other countries and the passengers arriving from other countries are being screened, you know, um, health safety measures are being adapted, uh, airplanes are being operated, the crews are trained, and so on and so forth. So it will provide the comfort to governments really to open up to more and more and more. And we see more and more of those are taking place um, beginning two months ago with China, you know what I mean? When, when China started opening up to certain Asian Pacific countries, you know, they agreed and what measures they would adapt and what standards they would follow. Uh, and, and, and they went about it. And we see that happening in Europe. And hopefully we'll very soon see more and more of that um, in the Middle East. The, the only reason that we are a bit cautious about this is we would like to see all countries around the world adapting similar measures. The, 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 the scary aspect would be is if each country starts adapting different measures and that would cause a lot of confusion it will be too expensive too costly too complex for any airline operators to operate in such an environment and let's not forget air travel has been built during the last 100 years and collective set of standards and guidelines and agreements that have been agreed worldwide it's a system that works no matter where you fly no matter where you depart, where you arrive, it's the same system that governs this industry. We need to maintain uh, this collective agreement and this collective thinking when it comes to the post-COVID-19 air travel restart. And we need to make sure that all countries actually adapt similar approaches so the industry could start in a rapid pace rather than really, you know, I mean, would be hindered and, and the restart will take forever. Mohamed Al-Bakri from the International Air Transport Association. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to Kelsey Warner, the National's Future Editor. Thank you, Mustafa. See you next week. Before we finish, here are the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. Chesapeake Energy, the US fracking pioneer, has filed for bankruptcy becoming one of the biggest victims of a spectacular collapse in energy demand. A merger between Saudi Arabia's National Commercial Bank and Samba Financial Group would create the biggest lender in the kingdom by some way, according to EFG Hermes. And Mark Zuckerberg became $7.2 billion poorer this week after a flurry of companies pulled advertising from Facebook's network. 
That's it for today. If you have any questions or comments, please email malrawi at thenational.ae. If you've enjoyed the show, subscribe or leave a review. All that remains to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, and you all for listening. Do join us again next time.